sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. All right, it's Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. What's up? I'm Brian. And hey, guys, it's Murdoch. Murdoch's always swilling the drink. That's always the opening move. Make sure you get a big mouthful right before you open the microphone. Sorry, man. There's no more going to bars. <laughs> there really isn't. This is like your big night out. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, rock this and roll. Is, this but is like a night out. It is. It, it's fun. I look forward to it. Uh, so, you know what we do. We talk about rock and roll rumors. We talk about innuendo. Uh, and we discuss what's real and what's not so real. And, and tonight, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to talk about big swings. Like, not in baseball. But in creativity, big, risky, creative moves. If I say big, risky, creative musical moves, what's the first one that comes to mind for you? Chris Gaines, when Garth Brooks <laughs> decided to have the other personality. Dude! That's the first thing I think of. Dude, that's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> what? What? I, be I did me. not think that you would, you would blow it in the setup, but man, that makes me laugh. So, okay... <laughs> Listen, listen. It's easy. <laughs> Let me illustrate what I mean. I could have made this so. I could have made this so much better. Before we get there, let me illustrate what I mean. Okay, let, let let me bring up a band who's very far away from our main subject, right? Because here's the deal. Our, our, our a friend of the show is sort of our executive producer, a guy who gives a lot of feedback on how we do things. Uh, he he had reached out a while back, and he was like, "You guys are dropping the ball by not doing an episode about Garth Brooks and Chris Gaines." And he said, it's so wacky, and you have to spend some time with it. So, man, I've gone down the rabbit hole, and initially the feeling is, when you start to dig through it, that it is absolute, excuse my French, batshit crazy. Like, you're just like, how did anyone sign off on this? And it's because of the story. We'll get into all of this. It's because of the backstory they create for Chris Gaines. But... The more I spent time with this, I started to feel bad for Garth Brooks. So I, I, here's where I here's where I want to start. I want to start about and look at another big swing, a swing that did work. Okay, I want to talk about the Beatles for a minute. So okay, it, it's easy for music nerds like me and you, and probably a large part of the audience, to think mostly of the Beatles as innovators who pushed music forward and did a bunch of groundbreaking stuff because they. Did. But in focusing on that, we neglect the first half of their career as a band, which is the pop phase, the definition of popular music. They were teenage sock hop proletariats, sing along bubblegum stuff, right? Where all the all the songs had pron- personal pronouns. From <laughs> me to you, I want to hold your hand. And, and and they were covers, like a lot of them were covers. And, and then a few oh, years in, tons of cover songs. They basically quit performing live, and they say they're going to focus just on recording stuff. Which, first of all, is risky move number one. And I remember when I was like learning about the Beatles, I got really disillusioned by this idea because I loved live music, and I was like, "You mean the Beatles just quit performing?" And I think we sort of glaze over that, but it's kind of crazy that the Beatles just sort of, at the height of their career, were like, "We're just we're a studio band. We don't go out and play." Yeah, we're, I mean, they, they were so powerful enough that they they got to give it up. And and think about it, you know, if you think about it in, in terms of marquee and who who's really famous, I mean, it's, it's still like three more years before Elvis gets out of this shithole making these movies and back in Vegas doing shows. 
Yeah. So they they quit before Elvis is even back, you know, taking pills and doing those shows in Vegas. Yeah, they quit early. Like, I don't think people realize how early they quit. So they come to America in 64, and like by 67, they're done. So, playing live. So, in 67, McCartney convinces the band oh, to yes. make their eighth album, an album on which they become... Terrible show. A fictional... Edwardian era military band so that they can play songs in new styles that they haven't tried before, including a bizarre song based on a circus poster that one of them saw from 1843. And when I describe it like that, there is an alternate timeline where this could have killed the Beatles. Looking back at it, writing it out on paper, it's kind of amazing that it didn't. People still really like them, so yeah, but they were interested in what they were going to do next. Because you've already blown where we're going with this, I I, it holds up. My comparison holds up because Garth Brooks is about as famous as you could possibly be in 1999. That's true. So, so yeah. I just I want to keep this comparison because I think it's sort of important. I don't think this is the way we talk about this Garth Brooks thing, and and I think it's important to do it this way. So, here let, let's finish up the Beatles talk. There's a great interview in the show notes with the New York Times writer who panned the album when it came out. <laughs> so if you want a glimpse at the bizarro version of the world, you can actually get it there. Cause, cause he is like, this was, this is terrible. Like he said, I just thought it wasn't good. Right. When it came, I thought it was weird. They were doing all this. Now we know this album didn't kill the Beatles in a lot of ways. And in most narratives, this record defines the Beatles, but it right. could have been so different. Give me, give me like 30 seconds on your love for Sgt. Peppers. I think it's totally overrated. And I don't like the record as much. And I think that Rubber Soul and Revolver should have been a perfect double record. And I think that Abbey Road and the White Album and Let It Be are are amazing. And I think Sgt. Pepper, of all the records I just listed, is the is my least favorite of all the records I just mentioned. Okay. Okay. That's a hot take. True. But regardless... That's, that's a hot take, man. I understand. Yeah. Regardless, we can agree that Sgt. Pepper's was a big swing and i'm laying this out because we already said i we tend to recognize big swings only when they like when they turn out okay they just become part of musical history another one we won't go into is like ziggy stardust right like that's a big freaking swing and not very many people can pull off this idea and that's that's actually a little bit more like what garth brooks tries to do right like creating an alter ego right right but we don't typically say when somebody makes a big swing and they fail, we don't we don't go, oh, well, they tried. It didn't work. Let's check out the next thing. No. More often, the response is, what a freaking idiot. Like, why did they think yeah, that well, was going to work? Yeah, because it's because with someone that's that big, that's a marquee arena artist and, and you know a little bit about the business, you know that there are PR people, marketing people, record label yeah. people, manager people. Yeah. And everyone somehow signed off on the idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you you put that in a good light, right? You you sort of think that okay, it's not like this person is an amateur, and it it feels uh, it feels arrogant. And I think that's why we sometimes celebrate when it fails. In the case of Garth Brooks, because the guy's on the top of the world, and he takes this people, swing that feels a little yeah. foolish. And people like to see people fall. That's, yeah, that's really yeah. the truth. It's human nature. So okay. When we started put when I started putting this episode together, I really did think Garth Brooks is an idiot. But as I researched, I happened upon some things that I think don't get pointed out enough, 
with which I think a strong case can be made that this actually wasn't just an instance of insane arrogance. So today I want to take a closer look, which you've already said, at the story of Garth Brooks and that time that he became Chris Gaines. So... <laughs> Tell me what you remember about this, man. Tell me what you remember. You were probably in the radio industry when this happened, right? Um, yeah, and I worked at a record store, and we all we all saw the cover on that Tuesday when it came out, and we laughed because we didn't understand. Asked before putting this together, here's what I would have told you happened from from what I remember. I would have been in high school at this time, and I wasn't really paying attention to Garth Brooks, but I, I remember it happening. Garth Brooks did a terribly weird experiment in the late 90s and became a different person slash character so that he could do songs in a style besides country, and everyone thought it was weird and creepy. That would have been how I would have synopsized this had you asked me before doing any research. And so when I started working on this project, I started with the artifacts. Namely, and this was again, I was tipped off, to look at the fake behind the music episode about Chris Gaines. I really, really, really want to see this because I haven't seen this in so long. <laughs> so here's, I, I here's the remember deal. It. Here's the deal. It's very hard to find. So they've I tried know. to get rid of it. And again, yeah. our, our pal Leif, who loves and listens to the show and, and does give a lot of good advice on, on conducting, and I, I, we're just going to call him executive producer. Our executive producer, he, like he found the video and sent it to me. It's on daily motion, which is the keeper of all sacred things that still should be on the internet, but can't be on YouTube because YouTube's too big. (laughs) So if you don't know daily motion, check it out. You can find great stuff there. Um, and, and actually the links in the show notes, but it is just absolutely amazing. And there's like Billy Joel is in it. Oh my gosh. I can't wait. Yeah. Like he enlists all his friends, but okay. So it, it gets weirder than that. First, there's the sex addict thing. And then there's this the whole, the sex addict thing. Like, they, like he is a sex addict. Like, that is part of the plot point of Chris Gaines. Sex really? addict. Yo, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't remember this at all. Okay. And, and I, must, I must have just not paid. I must have seen this happening and just, like, turned my head and it, just went to some indie rock snotty conversation and never. Yeah, me too. And there's no context for why he's a sex addict. He just is. And then weirder, weirder with no context, the story of Chris Gaines... <laughs> involves a terrible car accident. I'm going to try to say this without laughing. <clears throat> the story of Chris Gaines involves a terrible car accident in his 20s in which he loses his face and it has to be rebuilt. So, <laughs> when visually telling the story of Chris Gaines, this is the thing. All, all, of it, all of his history. So, Leif was trying to explain this to me when he first told me the story. He was like, so he's in a car wreck and then his face has to be reconstructed. And I was like, what? And so it does... It doesn't make sense until you watch it. But he's a sex addict. Here's the idea. So when you're watching when you're watching the behind the music, there's actually a different actor playing him in the early scenes. And then he later is is Garth Brooks as Chris Gaines. So he only plays the version of him with the reconstructed face. Like he used to look totally different. So that's how they explain like having he's an like, actor that looks nothing like him playing the younger version of him. At the end at the middle when they switch to Garth Brooks it's like Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> He's shameless. I want to see the other side of your face. (laughs) Oklahoma, hillbilly. 
Uh, this is so good. Okay. okay. Gotta keep going. So, I love this story. All of that is confusing to say out loud, let alone actually even comprehend what's happening. <laughs> and, and we have a lot more to dig into. But before we get to the actual Chris Gaines experience, we have to back the car up and talk about Garth Brooks because that's super important. You pointed out the Beatles were so freaking popular they could have done anything in 1967, right? Was sort of your point. Yeah. And it sort of feels like that. If you go back and look, I mean, person, performer, superstar, Garth Brooks was at the pinnacle. Um, so historically in the pop cultural lexicon, Garth is firmly planted in the 90s as like a symbol of the Clinton years, right? And like AOL yeah. and optimism and Garth Brooks. And he actually starts his journey in 85. He doesn't really get on his way until 89. That first record he puts out, and I didn't realize how much stuff he puts out quickly that is it has sort of lived on. And you and I, you know, we both worked in country radio at different times, so we know this stuff. He does, uh, that first record has much too young to feel this damn old. If yeah. Tomorrow Never Comes, Not Counting On You, and The Dance. Those are all on the first record. And he goes on tour with Kenny Rogers. Uh-uh. Yeah, wow. in 89. So then in 90, the No Fences album comes out, and he starts to make a name for himself as a live performer. Now, this is the thing, right? It's easy to forget how he sort of broke all normal country convention by giving himself a headset mic. Right, and and deciding that when he was a kid and he went to see Kiss that he wanted to he wanted to show a sh- do a show. Right. And I mean, he, the, he brought the show. I was so excited to talk to you about this because that's always been part of the Garth Brooks story is I love Kiss. Like that's always been part of the Garth Brooks story. And it becomes yeah. part of this story when he sort of, sort of jumps into the Chris Gaines persona because he's like, I'm not just a country guy. Like I love everything. And I think it's so weird because I think now he almost would be better suited for the environment as a performer. Because he could be whatever he wanted to be, and people wouldn't necessarily hold him to a convention. But I don't think the country audience in the 90s was very forgiving of stepping out of the role that you were supposed to play. No, this is like the Dennis Hopper sucking on oxygen or nitrous in blue velvet weird. Like it was, <laughs> it was like nothing about this was like okay. Like uh, nothing about it. So again, he was mobile, he was moving around, he was dynamic and interactive in the live show, and it changed the way that people thought about live country music. Like, if you think about live country music before this, think yeah. of, like, Randy Travis. Randy Travis has a guitar, and he's standing in front of a microphone. It's, he may he's have digging a, up bones. Yeah, he may have a wild fiddle player, but, like, he himself is probably not running laps like Springsteen. But Garth was bringing all these rock and roll elements onto the stage, and it really change things so to give you the cliff notes on this whole thing basically the rest of the decade garth just starts to rise album after album tour after tour he becomes the new template for country music as a form of entertainment and not just a form of music and to give you an idea of where he's at in his career when this story really picks up in 97 he does a concert in central park in new york city Nine hundred eighty thousand people attend <laughs> <laughs> Almost a million people attend this in Central Park. So just for comparison, you probably have owned at some point, if you don't currently, Simon and Garfunkel in Central Park in 81. How many people do you think were at that show? Half million. Exactly. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, and that's an iconic record in a moment in history that people still talk about. Now, a million people in the middle of New York City signifies something else, too, that we can't skip over, which is country music is no longer on the fringes. Right, right. It's in, in New, New York, York City. City. 
Yeah, in Central Park, like you, you just don't have country artists. You still don't today. No, no. I mean, there's nobody that compares, right? There's nobody. Luke Bryan, Blake Shelton, those guys are big in country, but they're not. They're not universal like Garth. And so this is this is bringing country into the mainstream. It's bringing country out of the middle of America and onto the coast. And Garth is the face of all that. So. It's easy because of this to perceive what comes next as an ego trip. And I think that mostly it is perceived as an ego trip. I think people think this is a guy who just put a million people in Central Park based on a bunch of songs that he wrote, or actually didn't write, which is not really anything we're going to get into, but he didn't write his songs. And he, you know, this this thing he's doing on stage has this sort of gravity to it, and people get this excited about it, and now he thinks he can do whatever he wants, Right. Especially because years later, something comes out about this period of Garth. Garth is a guy with a lot of aspirations. And he was pursuing some of those behind closed doors at this point. And people didn't know about it. But he was trying to get a film career. So interesting. Now that we know that, it makes this narrative even... it, It makes it even stronger of a case that he his ego was a little out of control because he was trying to, to make it into film. Because film is a big part of this. And that's something that I think just on the surface when we talk about Chris Gaines, we sometimes forget. But it, it'll play a key point because Chris Gaines is actually a film character. So we'll get there in a minute. But let me shed some light here on this whole film aspiration thing. Mid-90s. Garth incorporates an entertainment company of his own focused on film, and he calls it Red Strokes Entertainment. And he hires someone from the movie industry to head things up. Now, her name is Lisa Sanderson. Now, Bad Blood will develop eventually much later. It's a totally different story that's really bizarre. And Lisa sues Garth. But I bring this up because in the lawsuit she lays out a bunch of information about things that Garth had been pursuing or been offered that he turned down over the years. And oh, on that list are Twister in 1996. Okay. And Saving Private Ryan in 1998. Oh, wow. So we have this story developing now that Garth is hungry to break into movies. Now, quick side note before we get... <laughs> I will say, like I was going to leave this out, but it's pretty funny. Um, the story in the Lisa Sanderson documents becomes that because it's pretty acrimonious when she sues him, that the reason he didn't take those roles is that he didn't want to play second fiddle to a tornado or to Tom Hanks. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but again, right. that's like in a legal document where a woman is trying to get, to get a bunch of money from him. So, uh, you know, who knows? Now, yeah. keep in mind, though, that at this time, other musicians were becoming actors. Again, we're in the mid-90s. So Will Smith is one. Right? Uh, but oh, sure. Even closer to home for Garth, Dwight Yoakam. This is Sling Blade time. Yeah, but Dwight Yoakam's a great actor. Well, it, it, if, if He's Garth... Established, it's it, established that Dwight is a pretty good actor. If Garth is slaying every other entertainment industry dragon and he's drawn a million people to physically attend a concert in the middle of New York City, it stands to reason that he could draw millions of people into a movie theater. But he's very concerned about getting this gamble correct. And that's why he's passing on Twister and Saving Private Ryan, which now, in retrospect, sounds dumb. Like, he should have done Twister, right? We would all be like, oh, yeah, remember when Garth Brooks was in that awesome movie about the tornado? But we're still talking about Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton. 
Right. Awesome Tornado Garth Brooks movie. I mean, the Tornado Garth Brooks movie. That's what we <laughs> So what is almost lost, as I've already pointed out in this Chris Gaines combo, is that that is what this is at first. This is a potential film vehicle to push the largest country artist and honestly one of the largest recording artists in the world into a film career. This is a film project. And it's and here's the other thing. It is not Garth's idea, which is another thing that I didn't know, which I don't think people talk about. Well, that's interesting. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by Pair, Pair Networks. If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get one of those up and running? Well, choose a website hosting company that makes it really easy. P-A-I-R, Pair. Pair Networks does just that. They have over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses, and not just in America, all over the world, right? So Pair makes it easy for you. It's a do-it-yourself website building tool. It's got features. It includes drag-and-drop page design, and they've guaranteed if you need a support technician, they're ready to help you whenever, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you're going to receive one free month of web hosting. So you can see for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Pair.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting, and you can use the code QUICKSTART. That's Pair.com slash free, promo code QUICKSTART, to get started today. Give me 30 seconds on Kenny Babyface Edmonds. 30 seconds? (laughs) You can do more than that. Come on. Come on. First... I want to know, was this Babyface's idea? A hundred percent. This was a hundred percent Babyface Edmonds' idea. Yes, it was. Then I, then I don't have 30 seconds for this this clown that he came up with this idea. Sorry. I don't know. It, okay, so it, crazy. If you're unfamiliar, here's a, here's a real quick rundown on Babyface. 26 number one R&B hits, 12 Grammy Awards, number 20 on NME's 50 of the greatest producers ever list. Chris Gaines. He writes for Bobby Brown. He writes for The Whispers. He, he wrote uh, Rocksteady. Um, he writes oh. for Pebbles, Sheena Easton. In 89, and this is where... Younger folks will know him. He co-founds a label called LaFace Records. And he quickly launches three careers. Tony Braxton, TLC, and Usher. Dude's a legend. Absolute legend. And we live in a part of the country where if you go a little bit up I-65, you can actually ride on Babyface Edmonds Highway, which is my favorite part of the trip to Indianapolis. So... At this time, he is married to a woman named Tracy. Tracy Edmonds. Tracy yeah. Tracy goes on to be known for hosting a TV show called Extra with Mario Lopez. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> How weird. But at this time... I just put that together, okay. In the late 90s, she and Babyface are working together producing movies. And they actually have a pretty good streak going. Do you remember that movie Soul Food in 1997? Yes. Then there was a movie called Have Plenty... Yes. And then there was a movie in 99 called Light It Up, and that had Usher in it. I did not see that, but I'm getting there's a pattern. there. Okay, so here you go. You know what they say, write about what you know. So in this case, bankroll movies about what you know. All these movies have something in common. They either star a musician or are about music and the music bit. Soul Food has Vanessa Williams. Half Plenty is actually based on a true thing that happened at Def Jam Records. And Light, up, Light It Up features Usher. So... Babyface is building a brand for himself inside the movie biz. 
and has lighted up his finishing production and getting ready to hit theaters in late 99, Babyface and Tracy are looking for their next project, and they get this idea. Now, the writer, Patsy Bale Cox, has written bios on Pat Benatar, Tony Orlando, Tanya Tucker, Loretta Lynn, and a whole bunch of other people, but she spent a lot of her career in and around Garth's camp, and she wrote this book that hasn't been heavily uh, circulated, but I did find it, and I did enjoy the pieces that I read, called The Garth Factor, okay? And it, chapter 20 details the origins of this project very well, and I'm going to read the opening of chapter 20. Now, Patsy Bailcox is clearly in Garth's camp. She's a friend of Garth, so we'll keep that in mind as we tell the story, but here's, here is literally uh, the first page of chapter 20 in this book. Would you say she's a fog? She's a friend of Garth? <laughs> is that, I don't think that was the fan club thing. Uh, it was the second time that Kenny Babyface Edmonds had called Garth about the film project that he and his wife Tracy Edmonds were passionate about. It was a movie that they tentatively titled The Lamb. It was to be a thriller that would focus on the life of an international pop rock superstar named Chris Gaines. Babyface wanted Garth on board. We think you're the guy who can take on the role of Gaines and put together a soundtrack of greatest hits for this character, Babyface explained for the second time. Look, we've got one of the best scriptwriters in the business working on this, Jeb Stewart. You know what Jeb Stewart wrote? Annie. Die Hard. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, he wrote Die Hard, dude. Uh, okay. Man, I don't know, Garth said, weakening a little. Don't you think you need a rocker to play a rocker? And I love this. Patsy Belcox puts this in. This can't be real. But she says that Garth, in this point in the conversation, suggests that he hires Prince. <laughs> Which I can, can you imagine Prince in this? In this, I don't know. Actually, the Chris Gaines thing with Prince might have actually worked. We might be talking about what a great move that was. Had had Prince it, been involved, true. That's true. That might have been great. No, 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 no. Babyface was adamant. We think you could pull this off better than anybody in the business. We want you, and Paramount wants you. Besides, Tracy and I will be right beside you. You can't fall that hard. Famous last words. Okay. So now, with this new background information, Murdoch, I want you to think about this. Do you do you feel differently yet about this whole thing? Yes. A proven film producer who has been actively producing films of varied genres that all star musicians or tell musician-related stories wants to do a thriller about a musician's murder and thinks a good business plan would be to get the biggest musician in the world to not only star in it but help write the music or help do the soundtrack for it. That doesn't sound stupid when I say it that way. No. It and sounds super smart. And now that I know there's Babyface's idea... <laughs> It definitely makes things sound different completely because I'm wondering like what was going on when Babyface was like, hey, let's talk to that country singer. Right. Um, right. Now, remember when we talked about uh, Saul's aunts and his turn into Hollywood on the Fogarty versus yeah. Fantasy episode, the producer is the CEO of the movie, the person or people responsible for making the cash. And this sounds the way I just described it, like it is going to make cash and, and Kenny and Tracy are the producers. So this all makes sense. And I think this part of the story has pretty much been completely wiped out of the narrative that survives now. So me saying that on paper that this makes sense does not mean that the movie itself was going to be good. <laughs> Frankly, I think the idea is pretty bonkers. Uh, I'm quoting Bale, Patsy Bailcox in the book again here, okay? 
The film Babyface proposed was a biopic wrapped in a mystery. The original idea was that a rock star named Chris Gaines has died under mysterious circumstances. One of his fans suspects foul play and starts investigating the star's life stage by stage. The Gaines character, played by Garth in his later years, would appear via interview and concert footage. Okay, so he's actually not going to be in the movie that much. Like, he's not going to do the acting part, really. There's going to be, like, he's just going to be in footage. Because he's dead. Because he's dead. But the idea here, and this is where they really get Garth to buy in, hook, line, and sinker. And this is, again, where it actually makes sense on paper, is with this concept of creating a character that was bigger than the movie by giving him a catalog of music. And so they tell Garth, go find songs. And remember, this dude rocks, right? He's not a country guy. So throughout his career, which at this point is midway through a second decade, Garth has always made comments about the variety of music he loved. We talked about this. He was he's never hidden the fact that his stage show is inspired by Kiss. He talks a lot about how he loves James Taylor. And honestly, if you listen to some of his ballads, that totally makes sense. And it's much more common now for people to jump outside their genre. But as I already said, then this was not a thing you did, especially in country. No. Yeah. And the record industry was literally at its height in the final years of the 90s. And the commercial classification of someone's musical art was very important for profitability. So Garth didn't get chances to indulge and do Kiss covers, right? Like that just wasn't a thing he was allowed to do. So this project gets Garth on the big screen and it lets him be a rock star with a new catalog. It's his cake and it's eating it too. So if you're Garth... You, why wouldn't you not do this? You're the biggest yeah. star in the world. I think the only cover I remember him doing was You May Be Right by Billy Joel. Yeah. Yeah. But that makes sense, sort of. Right? I mean, especially You May Be Right of all of Billy Joel's catalog. Yeah. Well, and Shameless. Yeah. Well, but... Um, okay, okay. So keep going. So Chris Gaines. I mean, this is a big swing, but is this a bigger swing than putting out an album as a fictional Edwardian-era military band headed by a guy named Sergeant Pepper? Like, I don't, I don't know that you can convince me that it is. Uh, you know, they're both really weird turns in people's careers, you know? Well, here's what makes it a really weird turn. Babyface, Paramount, and now Garth decide to put things out in a non-traditional order. So they're basically going to create this character in advance of the film. And then once he's established as a character in pop culture because they're going to give him an album and they're going to give him TV specials, then they'll make the movie. So that's the really big swing part of this, right? That's I, I think is especially risky. But where are they going to get the songs from? So do you remember that 90s era Clapton song that was a big pop hit called Change of the World? Yeah, I do. Change the world. Uh, it was in a John Travolta movie where um, uh, I think John Travolta can touch people and heal them or something weird. Uh, and Winona did a version of it. That song won a Grammy. So Garth gets a bunch of demos from the guys who did that song. And I'm going to not shove us down this, this hole, but let me just say, because it would be disingenuous to myself to not point this out. Um, one of the guys involved in this whole thing is a guy named Wayne Kirkpatrick who becomes a very big presence in Nashville, but he cut his teeth in the 80s on Christian pop music. Like, basically, Christian pop music wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Wayne Kirkpatrick. So this is Wayne Kirkpatrick's second act in the 90s. 
and he's very much responsible for all the Chris Gaines music, which is hilarious. Um, so he gets these demos. Garth gets these demos from Wayne Kirkpatrick, and he starts to sculpt the musical backstory in the different eras of Chris Gaines. And as I dug through books and articles and TV specials doing all this prep, I kept trying to put my finger on where things go off the road. Because again, up to this point, this all sort of, I get it. And I was going to make a case for it being the wig (laughs) that they give Garth. Right. Because man, that wig is not good. But I think it's the backstory. I think it's the backstory where things go bad. So they create a press kit for Chris Gaines. Like the publicity materials that you send to the radio station. And this is where we do start to see the photos of Garth wearing a black wig, which is disturbing. Um, Now, I I mentioned earlier that it's very hard to find the behind the music. This press kit is also very hard to find. But if you go to the show notes, I found a guy, this is unbelievable, who who has found this press kit and he has made a video of himself reviewing the press kit and put it on YouTube. That's great. That's better than just having screen cap- captures. Oh, yeah. So he's like reading the bio and displaying the different materials. And the guy who posted this on YouTube has a whole theory that they let Garth write the press release himself. I, that I find a little hard to believe in concept because he doesn't write anything. He doesn't write his songs. But the story of Chris Gaines as a character is so weird that it does sort of smack of like overambitiousness of someone trying to prove their existence and their creativity. We already touched on the two really weird things, sex addiction and car wreck. But there's also this crazy section of the backstory about Chris Gaines' best friend being a teenage pilot who dies in a plane wreck. And this whole bizarre thing about how swimming was the family business and that Chris rejected... And, oh, oh, and Chris Gaines is Australian. (laughs) Like, all these little things are so strange. Oh, well, that's totally different. And so in 1999, they take this backstory and this press kit and they unleash Chris Gaines into the world. Here's a rough timeline of what happens. July of 99, the first mention of the project. September, a TV special where Garth talks about the new character in the film. Five days later, they drop the album. Now, a TV special and an album should have been enough to power this new project by the biggest artist in the country. But remember, this is a big swing, and it is pre-internet everywhere big swing, which means... They have to make sure people are seeing this everywhere and truly getting the message. So in November, this Chris Gaines behind the music happens. And all of those crazy biographic details that up to this point were just in a buried press release, they get burned into the retinas and brainstems across the United States forever. And I really think that is what, I think that's what does it. I blame this special. I think this special tanks the whole project. Because it's like breaking the fourth and fifth and sixth wall. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, it's not supposed to be like that. The behind the music thing is supposed to be this really sort of kind of personal thing. And some of it's like a little dirty and raunchy a lot of times. It makes it look like a joke when they do it. Right. Because it, it feels like a parody. Okay, we talked about parody on the show recently. It feels like a parody. Because they're like talking about sex addiction, which is like something you talk about on the Def Leppard episode, right? And they're talking about like alcohol and plane crashes, which is something you talk about on another episode. Like it feels like they're taking all the ingredients of a good behind the music and like throwing them in a blender and making a real throwing in vodka on top of it. Like it's just strange, right? Yeah. It's like I, the, Sim- the Simpsons behind the laughter episode. Yeah. Yeah. So that's 
That's my theory. That because the music works. He actually gets a number five pop hit with Lost in You. And the album goes number two on the all genre Billboard 200 chart. Now, no way. people say it was a failure because it didn't sell like a Garth project, but it sold pretty good for being anybody but Garth. Yeah. Number two? I'd yeah. Say so. But once Garth starts playing this character on screen and wearing the wig and the character is just bizarre, there's like this collective agreement that culturally we're just cashing out. So one last stab happens in December, and you're going to know what I'm going to say as soon as I start to say it. Garth hosts SNL, and Chris Gaines is the musical guest. That's right. I remember. I'd forgotten. I'd chosen to forget this. <laughs> and this it's, is just, it's too far. The new narrative becomes not Garth is going to some great lengths to secure a possible movie career, which is really the story. It becomes Garth has an identity crisis. Garth doesn't know who he is. Garth thinks he's some guy in a wig. Yeah. Was this, I wonder if this was the episode where him and Sherry O'Terry did the Summer Donna thing where they would say, simmer down now, simmer down now to people. Oh, summer yeah, down, yeah, yeah, yeah. Simmer yeah, down yeah, now. Yeah. Sim- and I swear, and they, like, and it was really super funny. I mean, he's actually very funny. There's a Will Ferrell Garth Brooks uh, sketch where Will Ferrell is the devil trying to get his soul for musical talent. Do you yeah. remember that one? Yeah, there's some really good Garth Brooks uh, bits on SNL. I'd forgotten about. He was he was exceptionally funny, except maybe his alter ego of musical character. Yeah, now I'll say I think there's a case to be made that the music critics torched this by being thick headed. Like even that criticism, like this idea that was very prevalent at the time that Garth is having an identity crisis, is like too on the nose. Like yeah, right. he's dressing up as someone else. He doesn't know who he is. Like that's the most basic interpretation of that phenomenon possible. Like he, like come on, be a little more creative. Uh, right? Yeah, it makes it sound like he's lost. Like he's on drugs or like you know he's doing fentanyl. And he's and, like yeah, and not like he's something. trying to be yeah. in a movie. Like I feel like the whole this is going to be a movie later. It's because of the order they put the stuff out in, which is because people are not used to that. Like hey, we're going to create a character first and then create a movie. There's a lot of reviews from the time where people just don't know how to talk about or understand any of it and in retrospect it makes them all look really stupid and like unsophisticated i think this sort of project would work a lot better now but i think in 99 like i don't know if i want to say it's ahead of its time because i don't know that anyone should attempt this again but i do think that culturally we were not ready for something so creative I mean, I'm using like sort of neutral and positive language to talk about it but it, it is a very creative idea and adding in these dynamics of the different media that like wasn't available when Sgt. Pepper's came out, because they, they couldn't do like a fake behind the music about Sgt. Pepper in 1967, right? right. But it makes yeah. sense that in 99, that would be the tool that you would think you should use. So I, I just, I find it all very fascinating. I think it's a victim of timing in a lot of ways, like timing culturally, but timing in the way that they did things. And, and I really do think that behind the music just destroyed it. Destroyed it. But I, I also think that no one in America in 1999 could handle this idea of a pre-soundtrack for a movie that didn't exist yet. Yeah, I, it, yeah, because it, it, everyone's suspension of disbelief is all jacked up because none of it makes any sense on how people are introduced to a concept or a character or a piece of art or anything, you know? Yeah. It, it even, like, the thing about it is it's not even that sophisticated of an idea. 
but people are too stupid to understand it if it's introduced to them in a different way or manner. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but like to your point, it's not, I mean, if this has been done before, the Beatles, Bowie, like big stars have done this, but I think it's the country element. I think people were still like, okay, we'll let it happen in Central Park, but we don't want it to be this invasive, right? And on SNL and, you know, fake VH1 and all that sort of stuff. Like I, I, there might be a little bit of a culture, like sort of a culture war sort of thing happening here too, that you might be able to make the case for, but Regardless of all that, this begs an obvious question, which is, what happened to the movie? Because we've not seen The Lamb. Yeah, right. What happened to this movie? Or Was there a screenplay that actually happened? So, it depends on who you ask. The movie straight up disappears. The popular narrative, of course, is that the reaction to VH1 and SNL was enough to scare all the money away. But, Patsy Bale Cox in this book, The Garth Factor, claims that that's not true. She says... That the deal only falls apart because the screenwriter, that guy who wrote who wrote Die Hard, had a death in the family. I, I, who knows? And speaking wow. of death in the family, according to Cox, it's Garth's mom's death that happens the same year. So imagine you're doing this big creative swing and your mom dies. Uh, yeah, that, and that's all, all. Everything he's doing is at the end of the year too. Right? Yeah, yeah, and and so it's this that leads him, according to her to more seriously start talking about retirement again. Because what happens here is that, like, fairly shortly after this happens, Garth retires. Yeah, right. And so it's easy to say, when looking at the timeline from a historical perspective, he had this big failure, and then he packed it in. Yeah, because that's what people thought. I heard that, too. But Patsy Bell Cox, as I mentioned earlier essentially in the Garth camp for a long period of time. So she is pro-Garth, and the book is pro-Garth. But these seem like relevant factors, if not altogether alternate explanations. Yeah, for the whole thing, which which definitely changes my perspective of what yeah. I thought it was. Yeah, I mean, right? don't you feel differently now that we're, that we're through this? Yeah. Like, don't you feel yeah. differently about the whole Chris Gaines thing? Yeah, because, you know, I naively just thought it was some sort of egomaniac... I know thing or whatever I did too, and, and it's it's hard for me. This is it's like I'm sure Dave Grohl is a freaking nice guy, and 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 he definitely there's a a friend of a friend of mine who he gave a major break to breakthrough who's like a Grammy award winning producer now. Like I'm sure he's a great guy, but I can't get around the idea that they've made a movie that's a, about a horror movie oh, I'm, about I'm, I'm 100% they, going to that recorded, thing where they've recorded their album and they've made a companion thrash record underneath <laughs> a different name of a band it's a big also, swing it's a big it, swing it, it it is a big swing for a band that is in the rock and roll hall of fame that that just has to do something i mean you make yeah. a movie yeah yeah, I mean, that's actually great, and it's it's great timing. I'm glad you brought that up, because that movie comes out this weekend. It's, it does. It six, is six, six. very interesting that I don't think we're going to hear anything negative about that, right? I don't think anyone's going to say Dave Grohl's career is over because of that movie. No, and people might say that it stinks or whatever, and people, I think, are pretty polarized about Foo Fighters. Like, you like them or you don't. I don't know, so... People are going to think the move is a good move or it's not, or people aren't going to care. Yeah, it's know? just not going to be a huge deal. 
like this right. was. But again, right. I think it's because rock guys have been doing this for 50, 60, 70 years. I, I do think the country thing has something to do with it because that format is still a little unforgiving of its people. Oh, of, of everything. I mean, this is, okay, this is what, three, four years before Dixie Chicks? Yeah. And that may be something we talk about at some point on this show because that's a big cultural moment in sort of how we talk about women, how we talk about country music, how we talk about politics, like all of these things come together in that moment. And so this predates that. I Here's the thing, though. I have a totally different theory on why this movie project fell apart. What's Oh, wait. Okay, well, I want to hear. I, I've not seen this anywhere. This is not anything that I've seen in the research. This is me making a speculation. Okay. You you and Tucker, you heard Tur- Tucker Carlson say this. Yes, so, me and so Tucker Carlson believe this. Okay. So, okay. You know what else happened on July 30th, 1999? Because, oh, hold on. The first time this project was talked about in public, according to my research, is July 30th, 1999. Something else happened that day. It's a Friday. You know what happened? A movie came out called The Blair Witch Project. Oh. A may or may not be real murder mystery, mysterious disappearance featuring characters who seem real but may not be real. Oh. Now, I know these things on this, they don't sound like the same thing on the surface, but follow me for a second. You're a major company with this idea of creating a pre-internet version of a viral sensation and you start to see the lines of fact and fiction blur in a marketing stunt. And someone beats you out of the gates by just days or weeks. I think Blair Witch accidentally stole the thunder out of the Chris Gaines project. Wow. That's an interesting... I have no proof of that. Perspective. Zero proof. But it's a fun idea because the timing is incredibly coincidental. They launched on the same day. Yeah. I saw Blair Witch in a terrifying old movie house that will never replicate the experience for me again watching any of those movies. Dude. Because it was terrifying. I love that movie so much. I love that moment in my life so much. And I know it's very much because of where I was and how old I was at the time. Like this, It's just a moment in history. But I'm glad to hear you say that. Because I, I saw it just in a regular multiplex with buddies. But it scared the ever-living, loving crap out of me. Like full-body chills freaked me out. And it's hard to describe. I still, when I watch it on a freaking TV in my living room, it still freaks me out at the end. It's just, I think it is expertly done. And we've been trying to, people have been trying to recreate it for 20 years. And that you just can't capture the magic of the first time. I mean, it's just so no. perfect. I've, ne- I've never seen it a second time. Oh, man. I've seen it several times. And I've seen a lot of the sequels just out of loyalty because Adam Winger did one. I love Adam Winger. Uh, and yeah, I mean, they're not very good. But. That first time, it's beautiful. So uh, here's one last thing. I wanted to really lay out the case for this, but there's one last piece of information that I left out of the notes that I have to tell you because when I discovered it in this research, Mark, I kid you not, it took everything in my body to not blow everything and call you and be like, did you know this was a thing? Because I've been laughing about it and crying in my studio for like literally for like an hour one day when I was working on this. So I mentioned that his backstory is ridiculous and that they came up with all these little details, right? I mean, right. we the whole thing about his friend in the plane is like a whole thing I could do another half an hour on that we won't, but it's just totally bizarre. And so they also have named his, his albums. So like he had a whole album history. So the thing that Garth was going to create was going to be his greatest hits. So this idea right. was that he had a bunch of records. 
So remember how he was a sex addict? Yes. His his second album was legitimately titled and promoted in the behind the music as being called Fornacopia. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so stupid. I was dude, hoping it was gonna be something dude, like really blue or dude, dirty. It's like Fornacopia. No, it's, just, it's stupid. No, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. I know, oh. I know that's what I'm saying. It's like <laughs> It's it's not even on the nose. It's weird. Dude, can you imagine buying a record called Fornic? I bought some pretty stupid records. Like, but even the Bloodhound Gang wouldn't call a record Fornicope. No, they would call it fuck or something. <laughs> oh man, if you have any thoughts on this whole bizarre Chris Gaines, Garth Brooks, alter ego situation or anything else you want to talk about, send us an email. It's we are the story guys at gmail.com. You can check out the show too at our website, we are the story guys.com. You got anything else to add, Murdoch? Nah, just keep telling stories. Yeah. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.